Eric Porfelli and Sarah Owens work at the same college, but on opposite sides of the Ohio State University campus. They have never met, but ironically, weirdly, they each describe a singular moment that impacted their lives in starkly similar ways. Sarah was 12 and sitting in a farm field. Eric was with his wife, journeying at night to the top of Mount Hilo in Hawaii. The ocean has this way of cleaning dust out of the air as air runs over it. As you're driving up, it's a terribly windy road. So we actually had to drive through the clouds. My parents had moved to Nebraska. There's no houses. There's just this giant field. And we had just moved from Philadelphia. So we were, we were from the East Coast. And So when we you know, broke through the cloud layer, we're like looking out the window and we're like, oh, wow, the sky's so clear. And um, But the moon was up. So the, there was moonlight that was uh, obscuring our view. You don't appreciate that so much. I've never um, seen stars like you see stars out in Nebraska. And I'm, I'm in this field, like this huge field, and I could point out like all the constellations. Like I was just like, this is amazing. And I just remember thinking, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And I felt so small. A, like, a lot of stars in darkness to virtually no darkness and all stars. It, it almost had this appearance of like a carpet of stars. And when that happened, I remember having this just um, this experience of, I guess, of awe, um, which was to suggest that, gosh, I'm like so small. We're all just so small. The whole planet is so small and insignificant in the context of this universe. And, and even though intellectually- so small, you know, like the tiniest, like I could just be squished. <laughs> like There's so many people. There's so many people and I'm just one person. And everything is just so much bigger than me. Like that's how I, that's how I felt. Twenty years ago, the first research done on awe called it a little studied emotion on the upper reaches of pleasure and on the boundary of fear. Those self-transcendent goosebump moments that shift attention away from ourselves and make us feel connected to something much larger. What's more, awe and its perceived vastness come to humans in a variety of ways. And because those events are so wondrous, so inexplicable, they force us to reorder our thinking, shifting our mental structures in ways that make us more calm, more creative, more compassionate, and more inspired to take risks that lead to discovery. In this episode of the Ohio State University Inspire podcast, we talked to six people about their experiences with all and the ways it impacts their work and their everyday living. And because music in its variety of forms can transport us to moments of awe, we're including with their stories the songs that make these faculty and staff members connect with the sublime. I'm Robin Chenoweth. Carol Del Grosso is our audio engineer. Megan Beery is our student intern. Inspire is a production of the College of Education and Human Ecology. The science behind one of our most mysterious and seemingly elusive emotions is quite new, but artists, writers, and musicians have endeavored to capture and translate all for hundreds, even thousands of years. I remember the first time I was in the Sistine Chapel. Here's Don Pope Davis 
a psychologist and dean of the College of Education and Human Ecology, describing seeing Michelangelo's The Creation of Adam for the first time. There weren't a lot of people in that moment. It was that point of the painting where God and man interact and believing in that moment that I am in that space. Where they touched fingers. Where they touched fingers. And I wanted to stay and take it all in. And it just blew me away. What we now know about all is that it lowers the heart rate. Its facial expressions, open mouth, wide eyes, and upturned eyebrows are different than those of other positive emotions. It compels people to be more generous, less materialistic, less impatient. And according to Dacre Keltner, who has conducted dozens of studies investigating people's awe experiences, awe comes in different flavors and is kicked into motion by eight different wonders. Art or visual design is one. Music is another. Some of those experiences are spiritual. They can be spiritual through the singing or hearing of a song. One of the things that brings me to tears every year is, is Handel's Messiah. There is a moment in that Messiah where you think of the divine or you think of something bigger than yourself. Now, the one that really gets me is the R&B version of Handel's Messiah because you want to get up and start dancing and you want to be filled with the spirit of the experience. Moral beauty, seeing acts of kindness, courage, strength, and overcoming in others, is another point of awe and wonder. And that influence can be quite powerful. Sociologist Max Weber wrote that charismatic leaders like Martin Luther King Jr. and Gandhi can stir awe and reorient people to acts of heroism and self-sacrifice. It may be hearing a speaker say something that hits you in the heart and you say, I want to be more like them. I want to have an encounter. Think of the speakers you've heard over your lifetime. And after the speaker is over, you want to hang around, not just to meet the person, but to be in their presence because you felt in that moment while they were speaking and engaging with you that something connected and you don't want to lose it in that moment. Mm, you want to hang on to it. You want to hang on to it because of a human predicament. We know what our lives are like. And so those are the moments when you say, I am inspired. How do I hold on to it? And what do I do about that? Can you, can you tell me a speaker who did that for you? I'm still moved by MLK's I Have a Dream speech. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted. And every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain. And the crooked places will be made straight. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. Also, author and activist Brian Stevenson. He did this commencement address this past May. 
Let your guide be your hopefulness. Believe things you haven't seen. Believe you can make a difference in the world. Sometimes some of you are going to have to stand up even when people say sit down. Some of you are going to have to speak even when people say be quiet. But you can do it knowing that there's a community of people, hopeful people, who have made it possible for you to be here, including your family. I got the chance to see him and I made contact. I knew who he was because I had seen his work uh, and seen some of the things he's been trying to do. Was he as charismatic in his just his demeanor as he was when he was a speaker? No, no, he was very, very measured in his disposition. And it was when he got on that stage that he became animated and pushed us to, to do something that we are called to do in our current society. To change the world, we are going to have to do uncomfortable things. We are going to have to do inconvenient things. And I hate saying this on your graduation day because I know that as human beings, we are psychologically uh, programmed to do what's comfortable. And there's nothing wrong with comfort. But to change the world, to increase the justice, we're going to have to be willing sometimes to do uncomfortable things. You always talk about the motivation for change. Right. The reality is that... The dream or the transformation does not have to happen in these big cataclysmic ways. The calling, the inspiration, the transformation occurs at the level of person to person. How can I inform and transform the lives of the people around me? What am I doing that's different? What am I doing that is allowing people to encounter the world very differently? And more importantly, what am I called to do? Sometimes we see people act upon their convictions in ways that make our mouths drop. That's moral beauty, the most common form of awe that people experience. It's what happened when I met Sarah Lang, an assistant professor of human development and family science, and congratulated her on the baby that she had just had. Then I learned this. I was a gestational carrier twice. I carried a family's um, first child and their second child. We knew a number of folks that struggled with fertility issues, and we were so lucky. Both times we decided we wanted to have a child. You know, within one to two months of making that decision, we were pregnant, and it was uncomplicated. And I think that was another key force of just knowing that that was really easy for us to form the family that we wanted and awareness that that's not true for everyone. As I was deciding which agency to work with, my partner and I uh, would only pick one that was inclusive of all kinds of families. There was one that kind of just stuck out to me. And uh, the first conversation that we had with the two fathers, I just knew within the first five minutes of talking to them that we um, we were just a great fit. One of the dads had actually been waiting a long time for this journey. Um, and so that, sorry, you know, that really spoke to me just, that, you know, in contrast to my own experience to parenthood, you know, that uh, for me, Again, it was so, when I wanted to make that choice and go on that journey, it was so easy. Mm -hmm. And to meet someone who, uh, for him in particular, knowing he had tried various routes and that there were more barriers, recognizing there were more barriers in his pathway to parenthood, it just clicked.
And so Sarah Lang gladly, happily endured 12 to 15 weeks of daily shots given to her by her spouse to prepare her body for in vitro fertilization. By the way, Sarah's awe song, particularly when she is pregnant, is Annie DeFranco's 32 Flavors. And I never try to give my life meaning deep meaning, yo. And I would like to state for the record, I did everything that I could do. I'm not saying that I understand. Because gestational carriers don't provide the egg, they are not genetically related to the child. But by helping to give the most manifold of awe experiences to another couple, the birth of a child, she experienced the awe herself. I definitely had a lot of moments of awe in the process. In the first pregnancy, one of the dads would come to every appointment to be there when they were hearing the heartbeat and seeing their child move and all those sorts of factors was just, um, in a way, really quite quite um, different from seeing it uh, just of your own child because you get to witness someone else's joy. It's kind of a chill bump moment. Yeah. 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 But I, I'm getting goosebumps just you talking about Our family it. will see them one to three times a year. When we were seeing them in the spring, just to see the two children together and how loving and kind they are to one another and just how happy the family is together. And then on their refrigerator they had, their oldest had drawn a picture of their family. In those moments, it's just so affirming Mm -hmm. that this was supposed to be part of their journey and my journey. Sarah devotes her research to strengthening children's experiences in childcare. Finding your calling, your purpose, seems to be a theme, or at least an outcome, of awe. These awe experiences fall under a category that Keltner calls epiphanies, or essential truths of life. They can include scientific discoveries, self-discoveries, or intuitions that lead to a new system of understanding. Elisa Tate had her epiphany while in a full-blown panic about meeting a fundraising goal. Now Director of Student Services and Graduate Studies in the Department of Educational Studies, Elisa was enrolled in a six-month emotional intelligence workshop, which had her raising funds for troubled kids. Back in 2018, she called me, asking me to write about her efforts. I remember coming to you and saying, you know, I have this really cool story that I have been involved in that has really changed my perspective on how to engage in the community and how it changed my life and how I thought about thinking outside of myself and thinking a bigger picture. I remember it was a pretty involved. It was very intense. Yeah, I remember. It's very intense. Was there kind of a moment during that six months that you just said, oh my gosh, this this is going to change everything? I remember I had a breakdown in my car because we were challenged to raise um, like $100 within a day. And I literally broke down and I started crying. I said, I don't know how I'm going to do this. I don't like asking people for help. I don't like asking people to support me. Something clicked and I said, if people believe in your cause, people believe in what you believe in and believe in you, they'll support it. They'll do it. And in that moment, I got creative. I was dressing up. 
I was having fun with it. I was encouraging people to learn more about the organization. I put on some fun, fancy wigs and I wore crazy clothes to work to really get people talking about what I was doing. I put it on social media and people would tune in and say, oh my God, what is she going to do next? And how can I support? And I celebrated every single win, which really got me into this sort of aha moment. That training really opened my eyes to see the fact that like, life is now, life is precious, and you get to celebrate it no matter where you're at. And people who love you, love you, and they will invest in you um, no matter what. That sort of translated into how I see the world and when I travel and do things like that now. It's fitting that Elisa's awe song is Surprise Yourself by Jack Garrett. Because Elisa kind of turbo-boosted her life. She switched jobs, enrolled in the college's EDD program in higher education and student affairs. She started to travel, immersing herself in various cultures and in nature. All moments began to be a part of her everyday existence. Here she is in the Grand Canyon. You literally cannot describe the beauty of the Grand Canyon. Like, breathtaking. And I remember taking a step back and thinking to myself, this river created all these different layers. All those layers are different times of what the earth has gone through. It's just like a map. If you if you look closely at it, you can see where it's been, where it's going. Awe is the emotion we experience when we encounter vast mysteries that we don't understand. Standing in the Grand Canyon was one of those moments for you, but that's a physical vastness, right? Yeah. What you experienced in the workshop was sort of an, uh, an emotional and a mental vastness, yeah, absolutely, right? Absolutely, yeah. I think for me, the, the connection was about how I see myself in the world and how I fit in the community, whether that is in a, a, a grand place like the Grand Canyon and seeing how small and how finite life is. Mm -hmm. And also looking back at the training of emotional intelligence, thinking about like how what do I get to contribute to the world? Because life is finite. Having that moment, like I said, in the, in the car and breaking down and snapping out and saying like, it's bigger than me. It really wasn't about me. It was bigger than me because I get to support and see others flourish. And, and the payback and the reward is so much bigger. More than 100 years ago, French sociologist Emile Durkheim famously coined the term collective effervescence, the bliss and sense of energy that people feel when they come together in a shared purpose. His final book focused on religious and spiritual fervor, another source of awe. But social scientists have come to recognize collective effervescence as its own brand of awe. Eric Perfelli, who was astounded by the stars on Mount Hilo, tells the story of a wildly successful program his team at Northeast Ohio Medical University 
created to mobilize underserved youth into medical professions. He's now the chair of Ohio State's Department of Human Sciences. This programming uh, basically involved partnering with youth to identify and tackle health concerns in their community. The health concern that they had identified in their community, it was their health concern in some way. This pointed to a theory in career counseling developed by his mentor, Dr. Mart Savickas. The things that you've struggled with your whole life, going back as far as you might remember, um, are, are, are these passive sufferings. And to the extent that you can find a way to master them, it becomes a very powerful opportunity. You ultimately have a pathway to be heroic. To Eric's profound awe, the program blew up. We went from a program serving in year one, like 20 kids in a couple different schools, to four years later, a program serving about 2,000 kids across 100 school wow. districts. It took off like fire. We never, we never aspired to something like that. We aspired to have a relatively small but focused program in some very underserved communities and make a difference. It's not just about that individual, but there are communities that are passively suffering, trying to figure out how are we going to make a difference in our own lives when the world around us says, we don't have the resources, we don't have the abilities, we don't have the capacities. Yes, they do. The program became an inflection point for collective effervescence. The awe that Keltner says dissolves the boundaries of individuals and melds people into something larger. You hear the phrase, we're part of something bigger than ourselves. And that's certainly part of the experience I had in that moment. Why do you think it's stronger in the collective? I think because we're emotional beings and emotion is contagious. And so I think that emotion fuels us. And when we're surrounded by it, it fuels us even further in a way that we can't do ourselves. We can't possibly generate the emotion of the collective as the collective can. And so it's a special experience, a special place to be when this collective effervescence happens. I've, I've experienced it probably a couple times in my life, and um, it, it almost has this out-of-body type experience to it. Like I'm now, it's not just me as a self-contained entity it's like we great god you can call i stand outside this woman's work this woman's work was hard on the man now his eric's all song if you haven't guessed already is kate bush's a woman's work collective effervescence the we variety of all can happen in an array of forms. At funerals and weddings, Sarah Owens, our other stargazer who is a program specialist in the college's Center on Education and Training for Employment, experienced it while crowd surfing at heavy metal concerts. It's just, it's like experiencing the music in a different way. I don't know how to describe it, but it was... What was the music? Do you remember? Do you remember the band? Um... The band was disturbed. <laughs> so we like heart, like rock, rock music. And so um, uh, Down With The Sickness was one that I've uh, crowd surfed to. Another really great one, I feel like where everyone was super in sync, and I'll never forget this moment. At the concert um, hall when they do it, they put down the plastic thing on the floor, Motley Crue was playing. So we got up close to the front. They were like, everybody jump. So everyone was, we were all jumping and it was like, boom, boom, boom. Like everybody was just super in sync. It was like, this is the best moment. And it, 
The music was great. Everybody around us was great. Everyone was moving together and just having an amazing time and laughing and having fun. It was just... You felt like you were one with the crowd. Like I was one with everybody. When I think of that moment, I smile about it. I can't help but smile about it. And yet, not all awe makes us smile. According to research, about 25% of awe experiences are accompanied by threat. Think of the near miss you've had on the freeway, or how you feel when seeing the devastation in the aftermath of a tornado. Sarah Owens is pregnant with her third child and eagerly anticipating the bliss that she will feel when she and her family greet their newest member, an especially profound moment of awe. But when she was flying in a plane with her two other children this summer... They both went to sleep on my shoulders and in my lap, and I was holding one of their hands because I was just scared to be on the plane. I'm just... Takeoff and landings frightens me a little bit. And so I'm sitting there thinking the worst things possible, like, oh my gosh, we're going to (laughs) crash. I know this is so morbid, but I was like, I'm going to die one day and I'm not going to be with them. And I don't know when that is. And it scared me. But both of them were sound asleep. Like, it didn't bother them. And I love that they're they're not so worried and scared of things like I was. So I found in that worry, I needed to spend more time with them and just soak that all in. And it made me feel like I need to take in all these moments. Other than having children, no other awe experience has reordered my thinking and faith more than my father's death in 2022. Shortly after he passed, I met Deidre Woodward, marketing and communications analyst in the college. The depth of her courage and the way she channels her experience to uplift others inspires me. Her song is Somewhere Only We Know by Keen. Here is Deidre's story of awe. Brian was uh, diagnosed with chronic lymphocytic leukemia after many years of being told nothing was wrong. He was a very young man, very driven and dedicated, um, great provider, good husband. He got a donor that was a 10 match and had a mini transplant, stem cell transplant, to um, try to you know, restart his um, system. But at, again, at that point, it was really too late. But at least we were given those options. About three years into us finding out that he was sick, the transplant failed, and uh, we were sent home very swiftly, as quick as we were in isolation and fighting and being supported by healthcare professionals and friends and family. We were uh, put out the door and sent home. Of course, we had the help of hospice. We still felt supported. But there was just something right beyond that I could feel that was coming. You felt his end oh, coming. Oh, most definitely. It was just mysterious. Lots of mystery around us, lots of um, comfort and support. But then, of course, that wonder and question and fear um, that I had being young and um, having two children you know, outside the door most of the time when we were taking care of things. And yeah, they were three and four when he was diagnosed and six and seven when he passed. Deidre's grandmother and her aunt, both nurses, came for the last days. Brian had not been um, talking or responding for 
a good four days. Then her grandmother called her into the room. And right away, uh, he sat up and looked me right in the eye. Yeah. Um, invited me in. Uh, I sat next to him in our bed. And um, gave him the grace and dignity and complete, uh, I was in awe of where he was and how brave he had been. And I wanted to reassure him that I would take care of our children and um, that it was okay. So at that moment, I, you know, could definitely feel something um, more powerful um, and something kind of shifted in me where I could handle walking with him to wherever he was going. And I really felt like um, I did that for the next, you know, three or four minutes, um, walking him to the other side as far as I could. You read about it. You see movies about it, you know. Yeah, you wonder about it. It's so hard to describe. And coming out the other side of it, there was a lot of um, hurt and anger and kind of lost that awe feeling for a while. It became very negative. Um, I felt very alone. Deidre wanted to stay inside the awe. I craved that peace and kindness and warmth that I felt knowing that he was going to a better place by my beliefs and what our beliefs are. But slowly, over time, I was able to um, shift that into my daily life. I walked across an empty land I knew the pathway like the back of my hand I felt the earth beneath my feet Sat by the river and it made me complete A simple thing But I had to really um, dig deep into that feeling and thank goodness uh, Brian brought that to me and whatever is, you know, the awe that supports us in every day that was surrounding him touched me. It came back to you. It came back to me, most definitely. Mm -hmm. So... I carry that um, feeling, not in every moment of my life, but I feel like the gift was me, me being able to recognize situations where I can use that strength. I don't feel powerful or I just feel um, that I'm able to recognize the bigger picture and what my responsibility is a lot easier. Death has a way of doing that, doesn't it? It's very humbling. And that's the gift in it if you can see it. Deidre raised her two children. One is married and expecting his first child. One is starting her master's program in social work at Ohio State this month. Deidre applies her passion for helping others by writing about the many change agents and programs at the College of Education and Human Ecology. And so awe, this most mysterious of emotions, can be fantastically beautiful and terrifyingly negative. But in every case, it can be the impetus to propel us, 
push us for change, make us take stock of what in life is worth fighting for. Here again is Dean Don Pope Davis. We can choose in many ways to be consumed by the ills of our society, or we can choose to say, how are we going to make a difference and transform not only our own lives, but the lives of people around us? And so there are these awe and inspiring moments. I think what we're called to do is to inspire our students, inspire them to think outside of the box, inspire them to be better than ourselves, is to have people see those, have those insights, to be in awe about their experiences and their encounters, to say, I can do this and I can do it in a variety of ways. That's what I think we are called to do. a playlist of songs that spark all and those who appear in and produce this episode of Inspire and many others in the College of Education and Human Ecology. See the link in our episode notes.